The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to continue our series uh, in the book of Luke. So if you have your Bible, you're going to be um, Luke uh, verse chapter 1, verse 39. Um, I think I'm getting some feedback here. We're good. Am I still feedback? Good. Just fight through it. We're gonna. Yeah, we. I have a, a new microphone, and so we're working through that. This is uh, after five years of hate and hate relationship with the previous microphone. This one is a little bit uh, different, so we're getting through that. That being said, we are in the book of Luke, uh, chapter one. So if you have that, here's what we're gonna do. As usual, I'm gonna read our passage for us. This is the encounter of Elizabeth and Mary, and Mary's song. Uh, it's commonly called the Magnificent. If you are come from a Catholic background, this is a pretty important passage. You read this on an almost daily basis. I'm going to read this for us, pray, and we will jump into our passage together. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, and now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown the strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Fathers, we turn to this passage and as we begin Luke and celebrate this advent of the first coming of Christ. I ask that we would experience the goodness of your care and support and the miracle of what you've done through me. Provide for us in Jesus. I pray that you look at her, consider the hope that she has that you would be filled with the same type of confidence. Amen. Does anybody know who the patron saint is? Thinking is it's not like a typical Protestant question, but I'm putting you on the spot. 
Anybody know who the patron saint of painting is? Anybody know? Let's kind of work our way backwards into this question. Can we put up this? Anybody recognize this painting? I've got a few nods. Yes. Who is this? Mary. Talking to Silas. Mary and baby Jesus. Here's another one of the same one. Here's Mary and baby Jesus. Uh, hold on. Don't go too fast. Don't, don't go too fast. Another one of Mary and baby Jesus. <laughs> we got the peace sign, right? It's like the sign of rulership, right? Um, all right, now we can go to the next one. Now, now, now the next one. Here's a little hint on who the patron saint of paintings is. Because here we have a painting of the painter painting the paintings. Anybody, any, any guesses on who this is? All right, this is, by church tradition, uh, St. Luke painting the painting of St. Mary, of Mary with baby Jesus, pointing the way to Jesus as the way of God to save us. So the patron saint of painters is St. Luke. This is uh, not just kind of some sort of like church, uh, you know, the special like special questions in, in church jeopardy where you get like the, I'll take church history for 500 Alex and who's the patron saint. This is actually like not just random questions. This is a long established church tradition because the painting here of Mary and Jesus, if we go back a slide or two, is one of the oldest paint. It's a copy of one of the oldest paintings of Mary in church history, probably the oldest that we have on hand. This is uh, a painting from around the four, 400s, early 400s, and it is entitled um, Hedagria, um, and it, it, the title of the painting is She Who Points the Way. It's attributed to St. Luke because St. Luke, from the ancient tradition, is understood to have not only been a physician, that, that's very universally understood, and if you read through the Gospel of Luke, there's very kind of very particular medical terms that he'll use that kind of give away that he is a, a physician in the ancient world. But not only that, but the, the sense is that he is so um, artistic, he's kind of like the ancient Renaissance man, that when, the way he describes Mary and the way he describes his characters is so kind of evocative that it paints a picture for people in ways that the other Gospels don't. The Gospel of Mark is kind of like your slapdash like action thriller. Like it just like immediately things are happening all over the place. And the Gospel of John is kind of like this is your meditative gospel. Here we have, um, I'm not sure who like the, the director would be for the type of movie that I'm thinking of, where like you get like these character pieces where you just really get into the character and you understand who they are and what they're like. That's why one of the reasons comes to comes down through church history that Luke is this painter because he paints in the artistic graphic way that draws us into the characters that we have in front of. Okay, so we can move on. We can, we can take those pictures down. Just in the sense of what we have here in front of us is the longest section, uh, not only of Mary speaking, but in all the gospel accounts of who Mary is. We get an invitation into who Mary is through this very evocative prayer that she has and this response from her uh, cousin, uh, Elizabeth, 
into who Mary is and what she's like. All that's to say, last week we saw how Mary is this invitation into a confident hope, a hope that is um, realistic about the world around us, and yet filled with a joy that God invites us into, as opposed to Zechariah, who um, maybe has ways that we can all relate to, but is not necessarily the model that we want to emulate. Here we have a Mary, someone whose world has been turned upside down by the gift of God's grace into her life. And yet she's filled with hope. She's filled with a certain type of hope, a confident hope that this portrait of her song, of who she is, of her soul, makes us wonder, what is it like to be filled with a hope that's confident about the day of that, That's really kind of what we're asking here. The, the picture of Mary makes us realize that she is filled with a confidence that a young woman pregnant out of wedlock in a culture that is very um, antagonistic to her circumstances, regardless of how she got there, right? We, we understand from Scripture that she got there because this is God's gift to her, um, is very prepared. And yet here she is, filled with confidence. What we want to ask is, why is she filled with confidence? What we're going to see in this passage is this simple main point. Confident hope sings about our God who always sees us She's confident, and we're going to see this as we work through this passage, that she, she's confident in a way that sings, again, unique to her, about our God who always sees us with mercy. All right, let's pick up here, verse 39. We're going to kind of skim very quickly through this paragraph up to verse 47, the first opening lines of Mary's song with hope. The way we get to a confident hope is that hope celebrates who God is. Is not going to be rocket science. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea, or Judah, sorry. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what we're going to find is that the Holy Spirit shows up at key moments all through the Gospel of Luke, and then specifically, in the, uh, if you were to read in the in the of the apostles, the Acts of the apostles, the Holy Spirit is always, you might call it the, you might call him the, the spotlight member of the Trinity. The spotlight is always focused on illuminating who Jesus is and helping us see what he's like. Uh, some people have called the Holy Spirit the shy member of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit's function is not to be out front but to point towards Jesus, you might say. And here she is, filled with the Holy Spirit. So as the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, she is given insight into Mary's situation. She exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now again, my Lord, this is a term, Lord, that is highly specific to Yahweh, God in the Old Testament. Not a common thing that you would just kind of throw out there like, Hey, little John, how are you doing today? I mean, maybe you're from Scotland, but not in the ancient world. And here, the Holy Spirit has filled her in a way that she recognizes this is a unique situation for Mary. She is carrying the Messiah. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Again, 
the Lord is the Lord here at the end is God, and in the middle is God. She recognizes there is a mystery here to what is going on, and yet it is a true reality that something unique is happening in Mary. So that is Elizabeth's praise. She recognizes there's something true about God that's going on here that only God can reveal to her, and yet and in recognizing what that truth is, that reality is what God's doing, she can't help but effectively sing. Like this is basically on the spot making a song with those again. And here is Mary's response. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Right? Mary's response to this situation, I mean, not only has something incredible happened to her, but now she's shown up at her cousin's house, and her, so her cousin has written a top ten you know, pop song for her on the spot. They, you've got the weekend playing the, the drop beats in the background sort of thing. And here she is singing about what God has done for Mary. And Mary's response is to say, first things first, I want to recognize who is this God that has treated me and engaged me and loved me in this particular way. My soul magnifies. That's where the term the magnificent comes from, magnifies. My soul magnifies the Lord. What is that? I mean, when we say magnify, what does that mean for your soul to magnify something? Like any, any any thoughts on what it means? I mean, I feel like this is one of those, it feels like a trick question, and it kind of is. When we think magnifies, what does it mean for your soul to magnify something? Any thoughts on that, guys? Nick, any thoughts? <laughs> exactly. I know. It's one of those like it is a trick question, but it's kind of obvious, right? Like what so when your soul magnifies something, it means it, the sense here is that it 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 want your soul wants to take in something that's too big for it for it to take in. So it it makes it bigger like your soul wants to take in something that it was it was made to hug and enjoy, and yet you can't take it all in. So you you make you make it bigger, but somehow you can't wrap your arms around it. Like it exalts in something that's too big for the world to contain. Like we experience this when we, our soul magnifies something, when we see something that we just cannot fully explain, and yet here is something that's goodness is too real to just pass by. I mean. The, the fact that I-93 goes through the Franconia Notch up in the White Mountains, and it's a common road, and yet here you are, you're passing by through these majestic mountains, is a crime. <laughs> like, yet, if you hike up and anywhere in that, that mountain range, your soul begins to experience what Mary's soul is doing here. You magnify. This is so good. Like, you can't quite wrap your arms around it and take a picture of it that keeps it with you. Right, it's too big. That's what you experience if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. You look at the Grand Canyon, just kind of like any picture is insulting to what's happening. And so those are big things, right? It could be small, like the birth of a child, or the small incremental yet meaningful growth that we all experience in our day-to-day -day lives. When we have a conversation with a friend, where you realize like there is some subterranean change happening here. 
and you realize there is something happening where this person is being tamed. Be something that I, I never thought this would be. I'm trying to think of other illustrations of where this can happen. I think we're getting close. It is something that's too good for us to just contain in this world, and yet it's truly here. And this is what Mary does. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's interesting to consider, you know, I would disagree with this tradition, but the Catholic tradition is that Mary was sinless her entire life. I think there's good reason to believe that she was not, uh, for multiple reasons. Here's one of them. She says that God is her Savior. There's a certain sense in which Mary recognized not only was she a sinner, but she needed God's help in a particular way that I don't think sinless people do. What is it, that being said, what does it mean for God to be Mary's Savior? It, it's the sort of thing where, I, while well, I can assume that Mary is just like you and me, I don't have any sense of like, what was she, like, what were her particular sins? Or how was she particularly flawed? Or what was her particular weaknesses? I mean, I don't know. Like, we have no arguments recorded for us between her and Joseph. Like, an argument's a great way to recognize, like, how people are weak or flawed. And yet here she has some self-awareness that she needs salvation from the Lord. And I think we do salvation and injustice when we make it too much, too focused on particular sins or particular patterns. The reality is, I think Mary recognizes there is death in this world. There is sin in this world. It has marked me in some particular way. And God has showed up to defeat Satan's sin. I don't think that we need to necessarily have a particular instance of what she's done to qualify her as needing God as her Savior. I think there is a prevailing sense that each of us knows Something's not right. Something about this world is broken and flawed. And we certainly get clarity from the Bible that it is sin and death. And God is Himself here showing us that He is the type of God who steps into the valley of death, the shadow of darkness, and brings light and life. This God is the type of God who pursues people who don't really know what they're saying but know that they need help. This is the type of God that Mary worships. Broad, general, God is my Savior. There's some sense in which God is her Savior uniquely. And hope celebrates. This is the type of God who chose. Mary was not inviting him. Elizabeth was not inviting him. And yet here he is. second thing we want to see in her song is that hope is humbled by God's loving attention. Let me pick up here half at the beginning of your song, and we'll read to verse 49. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Right? There's a self-awareness that she's like, okay, now that I'm going to be the mother of the Savior, everybody's going to know who his mama was forever. Like, that's just pretty obvious, like, baked into the song. But it's interesting that she doesn't just kind of flout that to be kind of like, what's Mary's LinkedIn account look like? You know, like Mary, mother of God. 
you know, it's not listed on her credentials or whatever. <laughs> she recognizes in the midst of all of that, that I am given as a blessing to be God's, the, the, the mother of the Savior. This is really more about the type of God who has looked on me and what that means for my experience. Of all people he could have chosen, he's chosen me. Here I am. For he has looked upon the humble state of his soul. This is, I think, one of the things that we emphasize, or at least I do in my thinking about discipleship. I think we emphasize this, and I think this is one of the critical things to pick up from Mary's thought. What does it mean for God to look upon my humble estate? It does not mean I am such a terrible person and God is looking for me. It really just means I am not a flashy person. I am who I am. And God has, of all people, chosen to look on me and care about me. Right? It, there's this inner narrative we can have that, like, I am such a terrible person. But really, this is really just saying, my humble estate is God sees me for who I am. Regardless of how we present ourselves to the people around us, whether what our social media feed displays or how other people perceive us or how we signal one way or the other about our class or status, our family background, our backgrounds of various different types of things. God here for Mary, for he has looked upon the humble state of his servant. Mary is a blue collar, lower class woman engaged to a carpenter. And God sees her for who she is. And he, his loving attention communicates in the midst of all that is unimpressive about your life. The God of the universe who has created everything wants to be with you. He chose Mary. He chooses us. And the second thing you note here is that he looks upon her, he looks upon us, based on criteria of who he is. Right? That's that's what it means. You notice at the end of her song, uh, at the end of verse 30, 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. When we talk about holiness, there's kind of two main ideas of holiness. There's moral holiness, God's holiness, where he's absolutely pure, he's never made a wrong decision, and we are not like him. The other part of, of holiness is God's otherness, the, the way in which God is separate from us. He is the creator. He is the, the one who made all things. He is the absolute perfection of wisdom and beauty and love and uh, all those things are kind of captured in this. He's other. His his criteria for how he looks at the world is different than ours. My criteria for how I look at the world is highly influenced on whether I've gotten a good night's sleep or not. And if it's that easily fluctuated, how much more is it fluctuated by whether I'm hangry or, or, or filled? Or how I, you know, how well a previous conversation is before I talk to the next person? Or whether somebody cut me off in traffic or not. It's so easily maneuvered and manipulated. God's otherness is absolutely separate from the way we kind of view the world. And that's not even to get into like all the like 
cultural codes and kind of how we view people and you know, how people dress and what that communicates to us and how we view people do those things. God uses God views Mary through his holiness, his other criteria. This is what we call grace in the Bible. God then not only looks at her that way, but responds to her, responds to us based on the criteria that he himself, for who he is, loves, pursues, mundane, regular people who have hidden sins, have public sins, have hidden goodness, have public goodness, all those things wrapped into the mix of who we are, he sees us through his own lens and wants us. I think one aspect between this interaction between Mary and Elizabeth for us to consider is that Elizabeth and Mary clearly kind of knew each other well enough for Mary to have an angel show up, major things go on in her life, and like, who do I want to talk to? I want to talk to Elizabeth. Elizabeth was somebody that Mary relied on and went to. And Elizabeth's response to Mary is to celebrate the good things that God has done for her. And I think one of the ways that we can continue to be a gift to each other is how can we, whether it's in a congregational setting like this on a Sunday morning, or in our small group context, or in a one-off coffee, a beer, or whatever it is you're having together, a meal, a hike, because you guys who are runners, you people who run and talk at the same time, and I don't know how to talk to you. People who do that, how can we help each other recognize God's good, 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 God's good gifts? Sorry, that's humble there. How can we help each other recognize God's good gifts and loving attention in each other's lives? We need other people. I think that's what's going on here in Mary's situation. You notice they are both singing. They're both exclaiming. They're both talking out loud. Right? This is not some sort of text or blog post or whatever. This is using our physicality, our voices, to say to somebody else, objectively, God has been good to you in this particular way. And then using her voice to respond, God has been good to me in this particular way. I think if we think about each other's lives. I hope this is what we experience here. That's what I experience here. I hope this is what you experience here. But increasingly, how can we be a gift to each other to celebrate God's loving attention to us? If there's one thing that's going to stir up hope, like, if God's been good to me like this, and I became blind to it, and now I'm seeing it more clearly, how will God be good to me like this tomorrow? That stirs up this hope that God is continually with us. Okay, let's end here. Verse 50 and 55. Hope declares the work of God's kingdom. We'll start at the beginning of the song and then we'll pick up in verse 50. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, verse 50, what we're talking about. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown the strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel 
in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, his offspring, forever. This is what the term grace or the Old Testament of the Hebrew has said. This is the term for God's absolute covenantal commitment to his compassion to the unfortunate, his has said, Jesus story book Bibles, by the way, I put like five copies out there if you don't have one. Uh, highly recommend it. Great adult read. And for kids too, if you don't. Uh, this is what the Jesus story book Bible calls God never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever. His mercy, his love for people is unending, and this is what it does. And this, this is the the, the foot-to-ground action of God's love for us. And the fascinating thing about this list is that I think at times we can kind of, we can over-spiritualize what the Bible means to be gritty and real. We can say God's mercy and think God has been merciful to me uh, in a spiritual way. And we tend to make things hyper-spiritualized that the Bible is intentionally trying to make physical and real. So, for example... When he says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. How has he done this? He has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered a crowd and across his partner face. So that's an intellectual, like an internal thing. Those who think highly of themselves have been scattered. Okay, I can kind of, in a metaphorical sort of way. But then he goes, he has brought down the mighty from their throne. He has exalted those of humble estate. Okay, so give me a little bit more, Luke. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So what turns goes from being kind of an intellectual concept of God's mercy, goes from being intellectual to being very tangible. Who's hungry right now? Me. Are you hungry? I'm like, Jacob, get over to the sermon. I've got Sunday lunch ready to go. He is talking about some very particular things grounding it in our physical reality. The Bible, especially Luke, does not allow us the space to hyper-spiritualize God's mercy and compassion. Through this gospel, we begin to see through verse 51 here, uh, I'm sorry, 53, he has filled the hungry. Those people who, who actually have a physical yearning, who have a physical experience of decay, who need in a very physical way, it begins to draw us into these categories of people who that are often excluded or disregarded as being primary characters of the gospel of So when he says the hungry, I don't think he's talking about, no offense, he's not talking about us who are ready for Sunday lunch. He's talking about people who are homeless, destitute, and beggars. Right? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about people who are hungry and feel a hunger where I do not know how in the next three hours I'm going to provide myself to my meal, let alone in three days or three weeks. That's what he's talking about. So the categories tend to be outcasts. And when God talks about, or when Luke talks about outcasts in this book, in the Gospel of Luke, he tends to have these kind of five categories in mind. Women, the poor, the unclean, right? When we say unclean, that means uh, demonic possession, that means people who are uh, have some type of physical malady, handicap, that type of thing. Uh, people who are um, basically outside the norm. Oppressors, right? So uh, that's the fourth category. People who are 
uh, tax collectors. So tax collectors would have been uh, Jews who had uh, basically kind of like a mob situation, joined the oppressive uh, government to tax their own people, right? Uh, and then racial enemies, like we were just saying, referred to. So Romans specifically, Gentiles broadly, people who were not ethnically Jewish. Those five categories regularly show up through the Gospel of Luke as the people that Jesus goes out of his way to empower, engage, and love. So, maybe a better term for outcasts is people who do not fit the mold of cultural expectations because uh, women are 50% of the population, just to keep all keeping track of that. Um, they are not uh, minorities in that sense, but they are minorities in the ancient world uh, because they do not fit the cultural expectations of men. They're, they're, the other aspects of this, for example, are um, it is not uncommon for people to be non-Jewish people, but in the expectations of the Jewish community of what the Messiah was like, it was Jewish for Jews, for Jews to come. That's kind of what was going on. So, we all fit this year. This room represents people who are the outcasts. We would be shocked to the ancient world that we are people who are claiming the Jewish Messiah as ours. And that is a part of God's work through his kingdom that we are beginning to see as the gospel of Luke progresses. I have to say, this is one of those aspects of the gospel of Luke as I prepare to preach through this book that I get a little uncomfortable with because I try to actively avoid uh, engaging in political discussion in the pulpit. But the gospel of Luke, because it engages physical, tangible realities, makes it unavoidable to talk about some aspects of politics, regardless of what I want to say. As maybe you can pick up on even just the dynamic of uh, our own discussions these days about uh, racial tension. Uh, if you're not aware, Manchester, for example, uh, the, it has been a 93% white city. It is now increasingly becoming um, less white, more ethnically diverse, and that expresses itself in a myriad of ways. And a lot of those ways tend to be filled with hate and resentment. Um, that is what these ethnic tensions of the oppressors being given the gospel and the gospel being given to an ethnically diverse group of people requires us to talk about through the gospel. Uh, this has in it, uh, through the gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus regularly, not just kind of feeding the poor in a go warm and be well fed and hope that you find something that's some good, but actually going out of his way to not only feed the poor, but telling people who have the means to use their money to give to the poor. Um, that engages our regular conversation going on right now about the homelessness situation in our city. Not only that, the Gospel of Luke, and this is one that I personally find very uncomfortable compared to just my own personal life, but talks about money in a way that makes it very clear that he's not talking about spiritual money, he's talking about your real money in your wallet. talks about it all the time. So much so that I almost once we realized, once I realized that Luke talks about it, I was kind of like, 
we're preaching it next week, but maybe we can change the gospel we're going to preach to because I do not like talking about money. And Luke talks about money in parables and ways that make it very clear he's talking about real real money, not treasures in heaven. But this is the kingdom of God that expresses this unending, unrelenting compassion of God to meet people where they're at, who they are on their own terms, bringing them into the gospel of light and life through a Savior who embodies the very categories that are contradictory to what we want. There's no physical description of Jesus. He comes from a backwater town, so much so that people question, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth, right? He comes to people and he selects disciples from uh, the fishermen of the day, uh, the tax collectors of the day, um, and then empowers who are the first people to declare his resurrection? Women. The first people to preach about Jesus being raised from the dead are in fact women who would have been shocked to have ever had any meaningful place in the temple life of the day. And yet here we have Two women at the beginning of this, of this gospel telling us God has shown up, turned the world upside down, and everybody is going to remember my name, Mary, for the rest of the time because of this type of God who shows up and converts people who are dead to being people who have confident hope that God's going to continue to be this type of God tomorrow and the next day, the day after that. Okay, as I've probably dug myself into many holes now. Let's end this passage by just remembering. Our hope for the days ahead come from this type of God showing up, offending our sensibilities, but showing up in a way that convinces us that he, his heart is always and forever holy, other. He is not like us. He doesn't have mood swings. He is constant in his compassion for us. And is increasingly and always dedicated to giving us that compassion. So as we consider where do we stir up our hope for each other, our confident hope comes from this type of God being with us today and tomorrow. As we consider the rest of the service, let's consider how we can sing hope for the sake of each other. God, as we look at this passage, I pray that you would help us and see who you are Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.